part of any sorting mechanisms? There's the question. For years, I strongly believed it should be. For most of my life, I embraced a theology which placed exclusivity at the heart of this table. A theology that said there are and should be legitimate parameters and prerequisites surrounding the Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. But after much study, long years of prayerful consideration, a lot of difficulty and, and unease, I no longer believe in that theology. Today, I want to take time to explain my thoughts on why I believe Scripture teaches that we should have an open communion table. But I want to emphasize again, like I've emphasized throughout this study, if at the end of this teaching we have different opinions on the theology of communion, that's absolutely fine, as long as we do not use that difference of opinion to create division, which would be the exact opposite of a major component of communion. Remember, for St. Paul, communion was about oneness with God and oneness with each other. It had a vertical and a horizontal meaning where people became one. So to create divisions would be a problem. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what's important. And difference of theology does not have to divide us. In fact, difference in theology can bring us closer together. Because if we're open to listening to each other, then we get different perspectives. And that's important because different perspectives can drive us, draw us further into God's amazing love for us and all that this table might mean. And in his love for us, that's when we start loving each other. Remember, theology at its best, theology at its best is not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about what draws us closer to loving God and loving others. That's when theology, I believe, is at its best. So we're at the end of a three-week studies on this incredible homily of St. Paul's in 1 Corinthians. During the first week, we considered the problem was Paul was dealing with in Corinth, and what we learned is that that problem no longer exists in the church today, and it has not existed in the church for probably 1,800 years or more. So that's what we did the first week. And that alone, that fact alone, that this problem doesn't exist that Paul's dealing with, can help us understand the more difficult parts of this passage. Then last week, we looked at the brilliant composition of this homily of Paul's. We went through the ABA pattern and all that stuff. I was sort of geeking out on literature there for a while, but it was also helpful in helping us understand what Paul was getting at. And then what we did was we looked at one of its biggest challenges, this idea that Paul is teaching personal examination as a prerequisite to taking communion. And I think we learned that Paul really wasn't teaching that at all based on this homily. So what I want to do this week is explore the other significant challenge of this passage, the judgment language, and see if we can't discover in this judgment language the absolute glory of the communion table and Eucharist or Lord's Supper, whatever we want to call it. But to be more accurate, what we're going to do is we're going to simply notice what he does not say in this judgment imagery, something that I overlooked my whole life until I had, you know, one of the scholars I was studying pointed out, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is brilliant. How did we miss what Paul did not say in connection to this judgment imagery? But first, let's quickly touch on what he does say, because it's pretty intense, right? Drink judgment on themselves. Many of you are weak and sick, and this falling asleep is, is actually uh, means death. Some of, some of you have died because of this. So it's pretty intense. But 
let's be cognizant of a couple of things. We should not be taking these verses and making straight line applications to our lives today. A, this problem that Paul feels is causing God's active judgment no longer exists in the church. So whatever Paul is saying in these verses, the application is much more subtle than a theology that is for all times and all places. So that's important, number one. And you know, that always, whenever we tackle difficult passages like this, it's good because it helps us ask ourselves, yeah, what do we think the Bible is? We all have an idea of what we think the Bible is. Whether it's an idea someone taught us or whether it's just an idea we've developed on our own, we all have an idea what we think the Bible is, right? And whether we are in camps where it's literal and historical to uh, uh, you know, other camps where it, it's pure just poetry and myth to everything in between, we all have an idea what it is and how we should read it. But, and so this is challenging because these verses can't be straight line applied to us. All right? And B, I don't believe Paul here is teaching a personal action equals consequence understanding of God's activities in the world. What I mean by that is he's not teaching the idea that suffering is always punishment from God on the person who sins. That's a really dangerous theology. And if you read all of Paul in context and Jesus in context, they know nothing of that idea. Nothing. Jesus was clear because his disciples believe that. With Remember, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, said he was born blind. And Jesus was like, what? That, that's a theology that doesn't exist. And he, and he cleared that up for us pretty straight. Okay, so then what is Paul saying? Because obviously he's saying something pretty intense. So let's think about Paul for a moment. I think what he's having here is some sort of prophetic insight. Okay, and what I mean by that, this, this insight he has established a general relationship for him between some of the suffering in Corinth and this unique and grotesque sin of abusing the Lord's Supper. So what do we need to remember about Paul? For Paul, the Christ event began the end times. So the Christ event, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. For Paul, that was the beginning of the end times. Okay, this wasn't something that for Paul was still in the future. The end times had started. The kingdom of God had come, and it began. And so a natural part of any understanding of the end times is God's judgment, right? Whatever your understanding of end times is, we always know that there's going to be judgment at this point. So for Paul seeing certain sufferings in light of that understanding of the end times makes sense. Okay, so that's how Paul's making a connection here. That's fine. But let's look at where he's going, what he's really trying to say. He starts off with this verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. The NIV helps a little bit. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. But one scholar, this is an incredibly complicated verse. One scholar, a very conservative scholar, calls it one of the true puzzles in the letter. And he doesn't do a lot of work with it because he's sort of afraid of it. He holds it hands off. But I think there's a couple things that can help us make sense of it. Paul is obviously not advocating for divisions, right? This entire letter he's writing is rebuking the Corinthians for their divisions. Right in the opening introduction of the letter, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree with one another and that there be no divisions among you. So he's not advocating for divisions. We know that right there. And even in this specific homily we're studying, he's ripping them for being divided along sociological lines at the communion meal. So I think what he's doing is he's referring to a Jesus tradition in which Jesus prophesied that at the end times when he came, there would be divisions, right? 
Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come. And we know this. And this is another one of these passages that sadly gets taken and turned God into a hater of humanity. Right? No, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. Because of me, there are going to be divisions. He didn't come to divide people. That's a dangerous theology. But there will be divisions because of him. But let's face it, that's normal, right? Every time the Patriots win a Super Bowl, there's divisions in this country. Because half of them, no more than half of them hate us, right? So when something good happens, divisions come. All right? So naturally, Paul recognized that some of these divisions had started. And their purpose was this sort of divine exposure of who was a true follower of Jesus Christ and who was not a true follower. And this is very consistent with the end times theology that Jesus himself was clear about in what? The ultimate sorting hat, right? Jesus is very clear that at the end times there will be a sorting hat. And it's all based on this, right? So Jesus is clear this is coming. There will be a final sorting process. So then, What's Paul saying? For Paul, to be a Christian was to act like Christ, was to live out the faith. And we've seen this repeatedly in Paul's writings whenever we've covered them. And we talk about this a lot here at Cana. Is, should the Bible be read as an imperative book or should the Bible be read as an indicative book? Is our faith more indicative or not? Because for Paul, being a Christian was not correct propositional thinking. And it was not any kind of an imperative understanding of the gospel. Do this and that will make you a Christian. That is not what Paul taught. Instead, his was an indicative theology. If you do this, you must be a Christian. Or not, depending on what we're talking about you do. And that's, he got that directly from Jesus. Because in that final sorting that Jesus is talking about, Jesus isn't asking anyone, did you have the correct theological opinion on this? Did you know this? Did you understand this? No, he says, did you act like me or not? Did you recognize me in others and love me in others? Right? So, those who do not live like Christ, especially here at this table, will not be proven to be one of God's. But those who do live like Christ, especially at this table, will be proven to be one of Christ's. The judgment imagery then comes in as Paul's way of saying, so all of this imagery, Fee sums up really brilliantly in this statement here. If you are acting like this at the Lord's table, you will certainly be exposed as not a true follower of Christ. And if you are not, how do you expect to escape the judgment that comes? Or for Paul, the judgment that has already begun. Okay, so that helps, I hope, make sense of this very difficult judgment imagery. But the important thing here for us is, while Paul is helping them all understand that true Christ-like living does not act like some of the Corinthians were acting at the Lord's Supper, he is clear to indicate that this final judgment of who is in and who is out is God's alone. God's approval judged in this way by the Lord. And so what happens here, and what is the most dangerous part of this passage, is that through the centuries, people have taken it upon themselves to act as God and make this judgment call on people. Think about that. Paul was clear that this is God's judgment, not ours. And it's Paul's understanding that only God can do the sorting is why I think this homily, especially here in the judgment imagery, 
and in what Paul does not say here speaks to the absolute glory of the communion table and why we celebrate it every week here and churches throughout the world celebrate it every week. Some churches celebrate it every day. And this is why I no longer believe the communion table should be exclusive at any way. All right? 